0: Hello, you are listening to Maghreb in Past and Present Podcast, a space dedicated to history, art, culture, politics, sociology, anthropology, and many other subjects. This episode is part of Health and Humanities in the Maghreb, a lecture series by the American Institute for Maghreb Studies Aims, organized by the Centre d'études maghrébines à Tunis-Sémat and the Centre d'études maghrébines en algerie SEMA, in close collaboration with the Tangier American Legation Institute for Moroccan Studies-Talim. It was recorded via Zoom on November 19, 2020. In this episode, Dr. Jill Jarvis, Assistant Professor in the Department of French at Yale University talks about Terra Incognita, mapping the afterlives of French nuclear imperialism in the Sahara. Dr. Samia Henni, Assistant Professor of Architectural History at Cornell University, moderated the lecture and debate. To see related slides, please visit our website www.themagrebpodcast.com.
1: Welcome everyone to the American Institute for Maghreb Studies Health and the Humanities Lecture Series, which is organized by Ames Overseas Research Centers, the Centre d'études maghrébines en Algérie, and the Centre d'études maghrébines at Tunis, and in close, very close coordination with Tangier American Legation Institute for Moroccan Studies, which is also known as Talim. My name is uh, Robert Parks, Bobby, Bob, uh, and I'm the director of CIMA in Oran, Algeria, talking to you from Tunis, Tunisia. For those of you who are new to the series, the aim is, which is, of course, inspired by our times, is to examine how different uh, scholars, authors, and disciplines in the humanities explore issues of public health, sickness, and disease in the Maghreb in both the contemporary period but also in the longue durée it gives us a little bit more perspective of illness in our own times. Um, we're very happy uh, that so many of you have joined us for this series fifth lecture, Terra Incognita, uh, Mapping the Afterlives of French Nuclear Imperialism in the Sahara. And It's really my immense pleasure today to welcome today's lecturer, Dr. Jill Jarvis, Assistant Professor in the Department of French at Yale University. Uh, Jill's research focuses on the aesthetics and politics in the Maghreb, and her talk today will be moderated by Dr. Samia Henning, Assistant Professor of Architectural History at Cordell University. Samia is a historian and theorist of the built, destroyed, and imagined environment. Uh, we're especially happy uh, and excited to have both in conversation today. Uh, from a strictly institutional perspective, we're happy to have both back. Uh, Jill spent several years of dissertation uh, fieldwork in Algeria. and her last talk for us at CIMA, Mes les Aveugles, Reflexions sur non-traduction littéraire, was organized at CIMA in October 2015. Uh, Samia wasn't able to attend the 2017 CIMA workshop, uh, Historical Preservation in North Africa, which was organized by Susan Slimovich and and Diana Wiley. So we were very sad then, but we were also very happy when she contacted us just a few months later and agreed to present her award-winning book, uh, Architecture of Counter-Revolution, the French Army in Northern Algeria at CMA in January, 2019. And I think more importantly for today's lecture and from a theoretical perspective, uh, both are currently working on the Sahara as a contested space in colonial and independent Algeria. And we look forward really to to their, their conversation as well today. So, without further ado, I'm going to pass the, the microphone to uh, our good friend Samia. Samia?
2: Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Bobby. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, I'm really delighted to be back. <laughs> Not physically, unfortunately, but I'm sure we will have the opportunity soon. Hopefully, we'll see. I'm uh, particularly delighted to respond to uh, Jill's uh, talk today, as uh, Robert uh, mentioned. I'm currently working on a book project called Colonial Toxicity, um, the French Army in the Sahara. And therefore I'm really excited to uh, discuss uh, Jill's work and also to introduce her, to introduce you, Jill. Uh, Jill Jervis is an assistant professor of Francophone literature and culture in uh, Yale's French department. She specializes in the aesthetics and politics of North Africa. Her first book, Untranslatable Justice The Politics of Fiction in the Post Colony, Algeria 1962 2001, brings together close readings of fiction, film, and photographs with analysis of juridical, theoretical, and activist texts to illuminate both the nature of state violence and the stakes of literary study. She's also at work on a second book project, Science in the Desert, an Aesthetic Cartography of the Sahara, which maps the Sahara as a site of material, intellectual, and linguistic exchanges that challenge both disciplinary boundaries and received notions of African studies. In her teachings, as well as her research, she's dedicated to questioning the assumptions of area studies and mythological orthodoxies. Her work centers the aesthetic and the literary making the case for literature as constitutive rather than simply reflective of political agency. So I'm really excited to uh, discuss with you Terra Incognita, mapping the afterlife of French nuclear imperialism in the Sahara, Jill to you.
3: Thank you so much, um, Samia, first of all, for making time to be part of this discussion. It's to my great delight that you're here because I've learned so much already from your work. So I'm looking forward to the discussion and also thanks very much to Bobby and to Larissa for organizing this talk series, for inviting me and to the intrepid teams at CMAT, and the AIMS for building this community. Um, And as Bobby mentioned, the last time I gave a talk at CIMAT was in 2015, which seems like another lifetime ago. Um, but it's really good to come back in this virtual space and to see faces in the audience who were there then. And also just a word on this project, the Signs in the Desert project that Samia mentioned, that this this talk is actually just the very start of, right? So I'm launching into it. My book is uh, coming out in May. So I'm just about done with the first book and launching into this one. Um, but this whole idea was sparked from the Saharan Crossroads Conference in Orhan that was organized by Sima at Krask in 2014 when I was a graduate student, which also happens to be when I first uh, ventured into the desert in Algeria, um, right around the same time. So a lot of the ideas that I'm now pursuing come from that work, those conversations, those sort of unexpected itineraries, and also from the seams of the first project. Um, And I found it really unsettling and strange to realize I had no, I knew so little about these nuclear bombs (laughs) up until relatively recently. And I think that's the case for many people. Um, So that not knowing is something that has troubled me and stayed with me and that you can see or you'll hear as I speak is something I'm sort of thinking through um, the opacity around this very history. All right. And as Semya mentioned, I'm a I'm a literary scholar, so don't mistake me for a social scientist, Uh, but in this talk, I'm really venturing into visual works, in particular photography and film, and reading them with the tools that I have to read, right, close reading, close listening. Um, And so so this is an experiment in some sense for me, and I'm really interested to hear uh, what what conversation can develop and really to learn from you, uh, Samia, and others. Um, And as you mentioned in the intro, aesthetic works are at the heart of my work, really the prisms through which I teach and understand history. And that is true of this, this project. So the term afterlife in the title of this talk is not a metaphor. Starting in 1960, in the midst of Algeria's decolonizing war, the French military carried out 17 nuclear bomb detonations at two secret bases built for this purpose in the Algerian Sahara. The desert sites, which you can sort of see in those green dots there, near Regan and Ein Ecker, were selected for their supposed remoteness and emptiness, according to the French state for purposes of safety, cleanliness, containment. But of course, the Sahara is anything but empty, and those deadly bombs were anything but safe, clean, or contained. The French government's official line on this matter has not significantly changed since the 1960s. So the term afterlife recognizes that French nuclear imperialism is not a past problem, but a present and a future one. It also reminds us that the consequences of depicting the Sahara as barren desert are lethal and they endure. So these bombs might feel like distant history to some of us. They might be totally unknown to many of us, but we right now are standing at the very start of their almost unimaginably long afterlives. And this is true of all of those detonations. Not only does harm radiate unpredictably from ground zero carried by wind, rain, dust, sand, water flows, the footsteps and the gestures of human and non-human travelers, but its residue endures temporally. Consider that the half-life of the plutonium isotope that was used to build those French bombs is something like 24,000 years. And consider too that the international treaties that ban nuclear tests are expiring and up for ratification in 2021 Right. These things bring some perspective to what I mean by present and future threat. So France's first nuclear bombs scarred the desert and our planet with a radiological legacy whose effects really have not been fully measured or charted. Their traces have been persistently made to vanish from shared knowledge and collective memory, quite literally, again, not a metaphor, buried in the desert. So before abandoning abandoning the sites in 1966 and seven, the French military disposed of irradiated planes, helicopters, trucks, vitrified sand, radioactive rocks, scrap metal ductwork, water pipes, barrels that had contained plutonium pellets, et cetera, by ordering French soldiers and Algerian laborers to actually bury it in the desert sand. Here are photographs from soldiers um, that show this happening. And the idea was that just that the desert would absorb all of this, right? Like the ocean, which is also what happened in the South Pacific. Um, But all of that material is still out there. The report that you see there is from a few months ago, July 2020. And it demands, that's where I got these images, but it also demands, among other things, that the French government release its classified site maps and inventories so that these burial sites, these toxic burial sites, can be found and decontaminated. That's that's incredible. So the full scope of this ongoing disaster has not been investigated and assessed by scholars, which is not to say no one's working on it, but the work is so huge, right? Let alone addressed fully by the French and the Algerian governments. This is not for lack of effort on the part of civilian and veteran activists in both France and in Algeria, especially since the early 2000s. Here's just a glimpse of some of the sources I've been working with and thinking through. There's a growing archive of testimonies from French veterans. There's a growing filmography of documentaries, one of which I will focus on today and also a list of organizations, both in France and in Algeria. And, you know, on the scholarly side, one of the scholars working on this topic is is right here with us in the Zoom room, Samia Henni, who is, as you heard, at work on a book about the nuclear and chemical um, sites in Algeria. And as I'm sure she can confirm, and I hope she'll talk about too, there are a number of impasses when it comes to researching and talking about nuclear violence in Algeria. Um, and this is true of Africa more broadly. It's my sense that these historiographic blank zones are not incidentally connected to the longstanding rhetorical function of the Sahara itself. For so long framed as a kind of void, right? Or a blank spot where human history goes to die. It's also a place ideal for keeping state secrets, All right, So this trope of a terra nullius, right? An empty, a space emptied of people has proven useful to many colonizing nation states, including the one I'm in right now, where I was born. In fact, born in the desert, inside the most radiant zone on that world map I showed you to start with, I was born in Utah. In this first text you see here, the Radiance of France, Gabriel Hecht has pointed out that waning imperial power and decolonization were explicit justifications used by the French to revitalize national identity after 1945 through nuclear power. More recently, being nuclear, she analyzes the ways in which African spaces and people have been perpetually ghosted from what even counts as nuclear in the neo-imperial global order, which reinforces African absence in discussions of nuclearity. And this is, as she points out, despite the fact that the uranium for the Hiroshima bomb actually came from the Belgian Congo. And even more pointedly, in this essay you see on the bottom right by Roxanne Panchasi, No Hiroshima in Africa. Panchasi identifies and corrects a narrative pattern of dissociated recounting by which historians of Algeria and France have long segregated analysis of French nuclear projects from the study of French colonial projects. She specifies that this is the long-standing habit of situating France's first atomic bomb tests in the Sahara outside the story of the Algerian anti-colonial war itself. So this Saharan disconnect has been actively produced and defended in ways that continue to make it possible to imagine that nuclear weapons, French or otherwise, are something other than imperialist tools of biopolitical terror. So following Panchasi's lead and acknowledging the long history of activism that directly links colonial with nuclear violence, I'm using the term nuclear imperialism to counteract this anesthetizing dissociation. And you can see on the top right there, photograph of protesters in Accra in 1960 um, against the bombing that was going on at Regan. And the phrase nuclear, no nuclear imperialism, right, is on one of those signs. So for related reasons, I don't refer to the, I try not to refer to the French operations in the Sahara as tests, right? Or their impact as accidental. The Sahara has been deliberately and systematically transformed into a kind of sacrificial blank zone by its state-sponsored cartographical and ideological projects that can be traced um, from the present back into the 19th century colonizing wars that the French carried out. Um, Such maps and ideas are now recirculated and reinvented for contemporary military projects and occupations such as the so-called War on Terror. This is the Pan Sahel Initiative from my own US Department of State in 2002. And that's another talk. But my opening premise is that nuclear imperialism targets people depicted as already absent and places depicted as already deserted long before and long after bombs detonate. So the very least we can do is to reject language that naturalizes, legitimates, or minimizes this. And as it stands, aesthetic works Narrative, poetry, song, might be among the forms best attuned to register the effects of this violence and also to train us, whoever we may be, to recognize and reckon with these nuclear afterlives differently than do our governments and legal system and other forms of discourse. And to my knowledge, Um, these are the only kinds of works that have really ventured into the obscure and treacherous terrain where taboos about speaking, frankly, about the catastrophe of French occupation in Algeria intersect with the present defense secrets of both the French and Algerian nation states. Um, it is in any case, by way of novels and films, in particular, the film I'm going to talk about that I have learned the most about this history and certainly the it's through these works that I have learned to recognize the patterns of nuclear imperialism as planetary. Right, I cited Michael Andachi at, sti- at the epigraph of this talk, and we can come back to those larger questions if you'd like to. All right, so a central question at the heart of what I want to share today is what might happen if aesthetic works are taken seriously as alternative forms for addressing and apprehending the threat of nuclear imperialism? Can the counter cartographies that they offer challenge the enduring force of state-sponsored maps that continue to operate in ways that enable and justify state violence? So I'm going to focus on a documentary film called Atom, and perhaps some of you have seen it, perhaps you have not. If you have not, you can take this talk as one long trailer and hearty recommendation that you find a way to see it because I hope to think about what difference aesthetic works and humanities training can make for our thinking about the kinds of danger that nuclear violence poses to ecological health, which is of course also public health and the the topic and the question at the heart of this talk series. So I'm gonna first lay out some brief history with lots of maps throughout. I'll introduce the film, and then I'm going to spend the the, um, second half of the talk trying to show you how the film does mapping differently, right? Certainly differently than do the images we get from the military archives. So as Semia knows knows in much more detail than I, um, the French actually built at least three secret sites in the Sahara. Uh, this chemical weapons experimentation center that was built before World War II and not revealed until the 1990s is now visible. If you zoom in on Google maps, you can get a, an overview of Bay de Namousse. And this site um, starting with Gerboise Bleu in February 1960, the French military detonated four aerial bombs at its Centre Sarien d'Experimentation Militaire, which is near Regan. Right, each of those bombs was named for a diminutive desert rodent, I think like a gerbil, and the color of the French, then the Algerian national flags, bleu, blanche, rouge, then verte. And you can see images of some of these mushroom clouds, in particular, Gerboise Bleu was publicized internationally. Um, along with the troops of photographers, there they are, Gerboise Rouge, I think, standing alarmingly close to uh, capture images of the bombs. You also see here a map taken from the French military archives that actually shows the precise locations of each bomb, as well as a couple of subsidiary experiments done with plutonium pellets. right, after this in 1961, which is the last months of the brutal counter-colonial war, of course, and also in response to anti-nuclear, anti-imperial protesters in Algeria and across the continent, the French moved nuclear operations further south and underground. Again, literally not a metaphor. Um, They went subterranean with the bombs at this site. The Centre d'Experimentation Militaire des Oasis near near, Einecker, north of Tamarasset, And Here, drawing direct inspiration from what the United States government did to indigenous land in Nevada beginning in 1957, and also at the urging of US President Eisenhower, the French detonated 13 more bombs inside subterranean spiral chambers that had been carved out from the Granite Mountain for this purpose. So you can see this mountain here right next to the Trans-Saharan Highway in Einerker, and maps also from the military archives of the detonation points of each bomb inside the mountain and the entry points to the underground chambers. And each of these bombs, as you can see, was named for a different precious stone or mineral like jewels in the radiant crown of France. Agate, beryl, emerald, amethyst, ruby, opal, topaz, turquoise, sapphire, jade, corundum, and tourmaline. Not shown here are the five simulations of plutonium accidents that were also carried out here um, between 64 and 66, called pollen, rose, saffron and daffodil. What names, right? So that the French did this on colonized territory is not an accident. From the French state's perspective, this was its own sovereign territory until 1962. The bombs exploded after Algerian independence were authorized by secret clauses that had been written into the 1962 Evian Accords that negotiated the terms of separation on the deal breaking condition that the French military would maintain control of its nuclear and chemical weapons sites in the Algerian desert for five years after independence. All right, so that's why in 66-67 the French packed up and left transferring control of the irradiated sites to the Algerian government and moving nuclear operations to two atolls in French colonized Polynesia in the Southern Pacific Ocean um, on whose inhabitants and environment they exploded 193 more bombs through 1996. Over the complicated relationship between Algeria and France and the transfer of sovereignty at this moment, um, meaning Algeria was the only state to have gained independence during nuclear testing has created a kind of a weird impasse Right. So in what country under whose jurisdiction did these bombs detonate? The bomb called Beryl detonated May 2nd, 1962, emblema- emblematizes this conundrum. Right. It's a few months after peace accord and ceasefire, a few months before formal independence right? and the film that interests me at home. There are many films that interest me. The one I will talk about here at home focuses on this bomb and its afterlife. Atom was created by the filmmaker, Elizabeth Livray, a friend to perhaps many of us here, um, in collaboration with the photographer Bruno Adjie in 2013. So the film is just 53 minutes long, just a few minutes longer than this talk. Um, And it combines landscape and portrait photographs taken by Bruno Adjie with archival and contemporary film footage and audio recordings to explore the obscured afterlife of this bomb in particular, Beryl, which is often singled out and remembered as the worst nuclear accident in French history. Right, so the film in 2013 um, emerges during the same years that military veteran activist groups had organized to put legal pressure on the French state to declassify secret military archives and expose the full truth of the impact of its nuclear operations in the Sahara. But it interests me that ATOM does not take up this activist project, not in these terms, right? So instead, the film brings into focus a small village um, named Tech in the Ogar Mountains whose residents were in the direct path of the radioactive cloud that escaped during the subterranean detonation of the barrel bomb. This is a hand drawn map that French soldiers received when they arrived at the site, and you can see the location of Mertutech here sort of off to the right. Um, known even to the French soldiers as a place to go see prehistoric rock art. And here is also a photograph taken by a French soldier in 1962 of a Tuareg encampment right next to the mountain. Right? This is a month after Beryl exploded. So it's clear from these images that French soldiers knew the desert that was not in fact uninhabited. So the film, Atome, directed and edited by Levre from Marseille as Aji and a team traveled and filmed in Southern Algeria is at once a pilgrimage a collaborative forensic investigation and an act of audiovisual cartography. I want you to see the trailer of the film. So I'm going to share it. It's about two and a half minutes long so that you have a sense of the the tone and the aesthetics of the film and also some of the images in your mind for the rest of my talk. So I'm gonna play this.
2: Tourné autour du sujet depuis des années sur mon enfant, je tombais sur des petites choses qui me paraissaient bizarres. Et la piste autour, c'est comme une vieille peau, une vieille peau desséchée, un parchemin. C'est comme si on a essayé de la soulever, un souffle. Les
1: Jusqu'à jusqu'à là, regardez en bas. Ça y est. C'est oh, ça débouche. Ça de déboucher. à
2: à Le Sahara se prête mieux que toute autre région à cette expérimentation parce que le site choisi est à la fois désert et beaucoup plus proche que les atolls des antipodes de la France. Zéro. drôlements du sol soulève les poussières accumulées par l'érosion sans cassure de la montagne. Elles ne sont pas radioactives. Les émanations sont en permanence contrôlées pour déceler tout danger accidentel. Il faut dire que c'est des images qui n'ont jamais été montrées. C'est comme si tu récupères une clé, tu ouvres la porte et tu rentres. Tu vois les choses comme ils les ont abandonnées. Et ça, c'est de la lave radioactive. La roche a fondu. And all ça, depends on the
0: lives of
3: people
2: who have n'ont
1: rien demandé. Let's mm. do
3: all right so you got a glimpse um keep those images and those sounds in mind as i talk i'll be referring back to them but atom ventures into uncharted epistemological ethical and political territory the film actually comes with i can actually show you um a pamphlet the dvd includes this booklet containing essays by the philosopher Jean-Jacques Delfour and the psychoanalyst Giseline Lévy, among others, along with images that guide us to grasp and to think through the film's epistemological states. So the booklet, which you see opened up on the screen in front of you, begins with a citation from Svetlana Alexievich's collection of Chernobyl testimonies, La Supplication from 1998. Um, And you can see that printed here, it reads in part, An event has taken place for which we have no systems of representation, no analogies, no experience. An event for which neither our eyes nor our ears have been trained for which we have no vocabulary. All of our inner instruments are attuned to see, to hear, or touch. None of that is possible. Yet Atom takes up the camera as an instrument to try to see what is unseeable and hear what is inaudible. And film is an intrinsically audiovisual form that spectators experience sonically and haptically as well as visually. So I think the film offers a kind of aesthetic reattunement. It presses us to find new ways to watch and to listen beyond the training and the vocabularies that our educations and our political regimes have provided. The film also generates an experience of place that disrupts and undermines the imperialist framing of the Sahara as empty space. It invites us to perceive toxic material and irradiated subjects in ways that differ significantly um, than those tactics taken by activist efforts to chart and register this harm. So to this point, these efforts have mostly focused on compiling and publicizing testimony from French military veterans and a few Algerian laborers who were exposed to the sites and also on putting pressure, legal pressure on the French government to declassify its archives and to expose its secrets so that the scope of the damage can be known. Champa Biswas in the book I had on a screen earlier called Nuclear Desire, points out that the story of nuclear weapons is almost always told through the medium of interstate relations. And her book ends by calling for other media, other frameworks that will help us to resist ceding more ground to quote, the authority of the state, its vision of the political order and the institutionalized violence through which it maintains that order. So I'm proposing that Atom is one such other framework and I'm amplifying um, Biswas's call. My arch- uh, Atom does not enter into that archival dispute. It introduces spectators to the ruins of the ab- abandoned bomb site Simon, and then the camera travels elsewhere. I mean, it, it goes first to Mertutek and then to Algiers. You glimpse this at the end of the trailer. It doesn't go into it there, but the film ends with a series of anonymous interviews with former detainees who returned from prisons that had been built on the irradiated sites and used by the Algerian government during the 1990s. Right, and many of the men who had been detained there brought home glittering jewel-like stones from the prisons with them, unaware that they were carrying radioactive rocks into their homes. And that's the photograph you see on the film cover of the man's hands with the stones. Right, today, I'm going to focus on the parts of Atom that are, that are shot in and around Mertutek, not Algiers, but I just want you to keep in mind the arc, right, that it ends with this lingering long shot taken on the waterfront of Algiers. Right, so that concluding image invites, the, invites us to consider just how far, how insidiously nuclear violence is traveling right now. Right, so the danger is not safely contained out there in someone else's desert home, out of sight, out of mind. It is also right here at home with us. So Bruno Aji did not set out to do a project about nuclear disaster. In fact, neither did I. Um, like me, he set out to question and to think through the idea of the desert as empty space. So what became Elizabeth Louvre's film Atome in 2013 began many years earlier with Bruno Haji's solo landscape photography project called Terra Incognita, which is also the name of that photograph. Haji traveled something like 3,500 kilometers over something like five years, taking photographs that would reflect on and complicate the idea of a desert so long envisioned as empty and barren or as a backdrop for tourist adventures. But what he found in that landscape altered his itinerary. So Edgy has described the terra incognita project as the work of an arpenteur, a surveyor. It's an interesting word to use because uh, the word conveys not just the sense of errant travel by foot across land but also using instruments to measure and document the landscape in the way of a geographer or a cartographer. And this is a suggestive term to use, given the role of French colonial cartographers and photographers as military agents of war, surveillance and occupation in Algeria, and especially in the Sahara. From the 1830s forward, mapmaking in Algeria and other parts of Africa was a direct tool of French colonizing war. Land surveyors were a vital part of that project. And it was in fact, the Ministry of War that created a cartography brigade whose job it was to survey and map the terrain in order to facilitate conquest and occupation. Um, and the colonial archives at X are replete with such maps. This is just one of many examples of an itineraire of a counter razia that was undertaken by the French military to attack and punish a resistant group near Timimoun, right? So that's the, that's the path of the, the counter-attack. I'm sorry, I don't have the date on it. I'd have to go back to find that. But so back to Aji, the surveyor in the desert, he began to notice strange details that he did not at first know how to interpret. In Tana's roofs, he came upon desiccated goat carcasses and other animals and took pictures, not quite sure what he was documenting. Like what was this lone animal doing out here in the middle of nowhere, mummified with hair and tissues intact? All right, and this photograph you saw in the trailer, Right, so this and others like it appear in the initial frames of Atom, like a prologue to the filmmaker's journey. And we hear Aji narrating his own gradual attunement to the presence of radioactive toxicity within the desert, like vitrified decades old animal carcasses in places where they should not be, or mountains of rusting barrels that he later learns had transported plutonium pellets to build the bomb. Right, so, and he doesn't mention this, but Aji's photographs, are uncannily exact visual replicas of the most famous tableau by French painter, Gustave Guillaume Le Désert, from 1867. Guillaume too, traveled like an arpenteur in the Sahara, making many different trips in order to paint the forbidding desert landscape. So juxtaposing these two images of dead animals framed by immense parched desert, images that are a century and a half apart, creates an uncanny sense like déjà vu, as if we have all seen this image before. So the visual repetition could be taken to affirm stereotypes of a timeless Sahara, a forbidding zone outside of history, intrinsically a space of death. But I think that Aji's visual framing conveys a more complex historical insight. That French visual depictions of the Sahara as empty spaces of death have operated rather too literally as self-fulfilling prophecies. And this insight, is actually inspired by a recent talk given by Ariel Azulay that Samia organized. I think last month we can talk about that. Um, but and Ariella argued that the, about the political function of deserting the Negev desert in Palestine, which is also I think where the Israeli state undertakes its nuclear operations. Right. But Azulay pointed out that to desert is not only an well desert <laughs> is not just a noun but also a verb. Right. To desert means to abandon in a treacherous way, to forsake, to leave a place, to cause it to appear empty, to fail someone at a crucial moment of need. So it seems to me that the contemporary era has been deserted, produced as empty, transformed into a dead zone by French colonial cartography, military policy, Orientalist image making. And these tropes and images have certainly been taken up and put to use by the post-colonial state since. Um, as the film suggests, and I'm not delving into here. But Atom's style of splicing together still and moving images positions us to watch and to listen to a photographer in the act of framing the images to which we are being exposed, and to sit with the unsettlement created by our conscription into this act of landscape surveying and portraiture. But we start to watch for the effaced histories that produce images like the photograph of the dead animal, we start to listen rather than only to see landscape and the faces in the photographs. So if we take its invitation, the film gradually attunes our senses to what is not apparent, or what is not audible, what is not visible. At opening frame is this photograph, terra incognita, um, with the uh, the, uh, latitude and longitude marked out. We see a forked asphalt road on a pale, barren-looking landscape. It's a compositionally spare image. There's no creature in it, living or dead. The color palette is muted. It looks empty and desolate. And the left fork comes to a dead end as if it's been abandoned mid project or sand blew over the the once paved road, right? It is an image of desertion. The traffic sign bars passage. It points the travelers and our gaze toward the right fork, which continues over the horizon. And in the image that appears on the DVD's cover, um, the back cover, It's almost like the the horizon is glowing like an aura where the earth meets the clouds. And when we see this image in the beginning of the film, there is a low frequency quiet sound like a a mechanical rumbling and a kind of high frequency hum. so we might not know how to decipher this, but as the film sequence rolls, that humming becomes more distinctive and insistent. Our ears start to strain to make sense of the sound and the sonic effect alters what we see so that this spare stripped landscape at first appears silent and empty, then begins to seem as if it's it's crackling, simmering and radiating, as if the desert is speaking, but in a language we might not know. And directly after displaying the sort of prologue of visual images of, of traces and signs in the desert, the film cuts to its title screen, Atom, and that deep thumbing Thrumming sound amplifies so that we can recognize it now as the sound of a bomb. And the title is this ambiguous wordplay flickering between English at home and French at home, right, atom. In English, it invokes the longstanding French argument, not just that the bombs were safe, but that Algeria is French territory and that France is entirely at home and within its legal rights to detonate bombs there. In French, the secreted H makes the film's title resemble a chemical compound and it lends it this uncanny secretive quality, conveying a sense of something sheltered inside the atom, something buried beneath the surface, something hidden in plain sight. All right, so there's something estranging and familiar, unsettling, uncanny in the title, a quality that it shares with the images in the film. Right, we may feel we have seen such things before that something ominous is lurking just outside our perception. All right. so atom, charts a pervasive violence that exceeds the limits of our senses and that defies existing instruments to map, measure, and describe. But the film also prompts us to recognize that we maybe have seen and felt such violence before, perhaps much closer to our own homes and within our own bodies, although we might have learned not to see this or to know it. And now you have a sense of the film. So in recent years, by which I mean the last 15, maps and measurements found in declassified military defense archives concerning these nuclear operations have been central to legal and activist arguments right to open the archives relief maps so that the french state pays indemnity and acknowledges this truth and these these photographs give some sense of the state's interest in controlling visibility around the observation sites which were built precisely to observe measure record study to make archives right and you see the soldiers there turning away at the moment of the explosion so they don't go blind. And you also see a photograph taken clandestinely by another soldier of the sign that forbids prise de vue. And Atom is rather strikingly indifferent to, or at least ambivalent toward these particular materials um, and to the activist moves to expose them. And I think this reticence and tension is something interesting to think through. And that's what I want to think through um, in the rest of this talk. In 2014, just after Atom was finished, and started to screen publicly this map, this fallout map, drawn up by the French military in 1960, but not declassified, as you can see on the kind of blurry note on the bottom, um, not declassified until 2013, dramatically exposed to wide public audience the toxic reach of the first above-ground nuclear test, Gerboise Bleu. It appeared with an article by Sébastien Ramnou in Le Parisien that opened with the sentence, C'est une carte qui fait froid dans le dos, right? It is a map that chills the spine. So this Spine chilling map traces 13 days chronology of fallout from ground zero, right, that radiated outward after the first bomb, Gerboise Bleu, in 1960. So Remnou specifies that this infographic is actually based on a declassified map from the French military defense in 2013 um, that had been sort of, uh, I think it was either leaked or used to put pressure on the state to release more such maps. The activist Bruno Barriot, who's a former Catholic priest and director of the anti-nuclear activist group Observatoire des Armements in Lyon, pointed out the limitations of these kinds of selective declassification. He wrote an article about this comparing the copy of the original Fallout map with another map, an isodose map that had also been published by the Ministry of Defense, but this one in 2007, right? So the one on the right concerns all four of the above ground tests. And Barrio places them side by side in his essay to make explicit a contradiction that also appears on the infographic in Le Parisien, which combines them into a single map. You see that tiny little blue spurt is that Isidose map. So Remnou here cites Barrio. In spite of the demands made by the judges, the army shared only carefully redacted archives from which entire sections were missing. We must reform access to this information if we want to know the truth. But we might also, this is me speaking, not Barrio. Uh, we might also ask what truth the state-controlled military archive could ever make knowable, even without redaction, and consider what maps like this also obscure. All right, so this map taken from the 2007 military defense report was used for a specific legal purpose, to delimit the geographical zone that would be covered by French indemnity law for irradiated victims. The map, the 2007 map on the right, it's blurry, it's difficult to decipher, but the gist is clear. You can see the the different sort of sprays of fallout from each map. The darker color is the more intense dose. The lighter color is a less intense dose. And they look pretty tiny across the immensity of the map. And Gerboise blue looks like the worst of the four. It doesn't look too terrible. Um, Just a small streak that stretches across what appears to be a relatively uninhabited region. So the map published in Le Parisien in 2014 explodes the magnitude of the French state's fiction by putting these maps together. But this shocking map from 2014 also highlights a serious problem of magnitude. When we start to consider all that it does not depict. For all of its rhetorical power, the fallout map also reinforces the impression of blankness in in the very act of revelation, right? We see a few proper names, uh, mostly of larger cities. On the original French map, you see French military posts, but most of the map is blank space. It only represents fallout from Gerboise Bleu, not from the other four bombs, not from the 13 subterranean bombs, not from the chemical tests that were undertaken over years at Ein Ecker. it says nothing about the dramatically uncontained bombs like Beryl. So the question is, why should we expect that unrestricted access to the archive would somehow fill in these blank spots? Quickly, we could look a little closer at the source of some of these maps from this 2007 dossier published Right, by the French, the Defense Institute there. All right, of the reports, 25 pages, 16 are maps. Five of those maps directly concern the barrel incident. And you can see two of those maps here. The yellowish one shows populations of villages and nomadic communities around the SIMO site. The other one on the right shows isotopes curves that depict toxic fallout in the region over, the, over time. But do you see how blurry they are as you're looking at them? This is not my reproduction. This is how they look in the report. Um, Some of them are literally indecipherable. They hurt the eyes to read. I have been squinting and squinting at them and increasing the, the sharpness of my screen to try to figure out what on earth they say, right? So this opacity and indecipherability of the maps themselves encapsulates the rhetorical effect of the entire dossier, right? It generates the impression of transparency and exposure while in fact offering total obfuscation. Right, here's another one from the same report. Isn't it amazingly blurry? That's, what, that's me putting the, the sharpest resolution I could find on it. So this is a population map around the SEMO site that includes an isodose curve after barrel. Three concentric circles radiating outward from the detonation site show distances of 100, 150 and 200 kilometers. And a really hard squint at that legend reveals that the red rectangles show names and population counts of nomadic tribes Black squares are inhabited places with the name of a village and a population count, and green dots show water sources. The gray zone is supposed to be the map of where that cloud from Beryl moved. That zone does not appear to touch any people, only water sources, which seems to be exactly the point of this map, right? And Tech, which I've circled because it's not easy to find, um, is not inside the fallout zone. And just to hammer this point once more, (laughs) the final map in the report is this. It's this dated looking color map as a background that shows a section of the Ogar mountain range with some places and names and mountains labeled. Two isodose curves represent uncontained contamination from beryl and amethyst, which are just two of the five bombs that the report itself notes were not fully contained by the mountain. So I don't know where the other three isodose curves are. They're not on this map, but on this map, we can see the cut and pasted toponym Mertutec, right, in white, which is obviously not part of the original map. So it looks like the town named Mertutek was added precisely to show that Mertutech was not impacted by the fallout of Beryl. So these maps were published in 2007 are contemporary cartographic translations of the imperialist idea of Terra Nullius, an idea that was forcefully articulated by Jules Moucq, at the UN in 1959, whose voice you heard, kind of droning on in the um, the, the trailer you saw, right? Le Sahara et a la fois désert. Remember that line? When he ar- he was arguing for the French right to detonate nuclear bombs in the Sahara on the premise that the Sahara would be relatively safe because it is so very uninhabited because it is desert. So no matter what position we take in this archival dispute. The dispute itself confirms or affirms, and here I'm quoting Todd Shepard, a fantasy that historical truth could emerge if only archival records were made whole and accessible. And this foregrounds, still quoting Todd Shepard, the centrality of the nation state in modern definitions of what pasts need to be recounted. All right. So state secrets are not an anomaly or somehow counter to the process of archiving, but rather are a defining feature of archiving. So fixating on the military defense archive as a strategy for exposing secrets and getting the truth also keeps us locked within the archival practice and the epistemological constraints um, on justice that are delimited by the state. By contrast, Atom spends no time obsessing over these archives but instead trains the camera on the detritus and ruin around and within the observation room um, from which such maps and measurements and images were produced around all of those bombs, but especially Beryl in 1962. Right, so as soon as Atom's title screen fades, that low thunderous sound is suddenly, um, clearly a bomb detonation. And you saw this also on the, on the trailer. But framing that are two portraits in the film. We see a black and white portrait of a man's face with weathered skin forehead lined. He is gazing directly into the camera um, and then the low rumble gives way to the sound of those men's voices speaking in French as they count down to the detonation. And the portrait gives way to this archival film footage of the exploding mountain. So what you saw in the film is archival footage of Taurit Tanafella, the mountain exploding at the moment of the detonation and the bomb cloud escaping. And the men's voices you hear were watching that same scene that we observe as the dark cloud billows outward growing moving they react they react with alarm they realize what is happening and the voices that are picked up by the camera are increasingly panicked as if deciding what we, what to do and then we hear the sort of sounds of a rapid evacuation so Testimonies from former soldiers who were there provide details that many official reports of this event leave out, including accounts that all the measurements of radioactivity created by the instruments that the soldiers were there to operate were actually seized and taken away by their commanding officers. And the cloud pushed east over the soldiers and, and then went on. Um, among the people who were irradiated were the French defense minister Pierre Mesmer and the ministry of scientific research Gaston Polusky who had come to observe they died years later of cancer and leukemia, as have many of the soldiers, But in the records are are sort of very little data about who else besides nine soldiers and those two ministers have died. But Etom does not dwell with these voices, witnesses and archives, right? It plays that archival footage and then it cuts directly back to another portrait of that man's face um, that it had started with except in this portrait the man's eyes are tightly closed with his head tipped back and his chin pointing toward us. The closed eyes suggest agony, prayer, but also refusal, a deliberate blindness um, to the images that are locked inside the French state's secret archives. And likewise, Atom turns the camera away from the kinds of materials that can be found in the archive, takes distance from those activist efforts to force the French state to expose its secret and pivots elsewhere, right? And never once in this film do we see anything like a top-down visual map. And so Atom ch- charts this afterlife, the effect of that cloud in a qualitatively different way. After the portrait of the man with the eyes closed, we begin to see a series of photographs taken by Aji around the abandoned Simo site which creates a kind of visual survey of the ruins that gradually draws us closer to the, the observation center. And we are, our eyes then contemplate detritus, scraps, waste, stones arranged strangely as if we are archeologists who are slowly pacing and sifting with Aji to begin to decipher the historical processes that created these subtle traces, like archeologists in the area. The sequence gradually uh, brings our gaze directly to the observation laboratories or what remains of them. That is, we look with Aji at present ruins on the site where the archival footage we just watched would likely have been filmed by soldiers operating cameras and the measuring instruments to track the bomb. We see, I think this was in the trailer, a photograph of structures that look like abandoned phone booths, a building with its windows missing, and inside the structure images like this and these metal shelves against a wall and cardboard boxes and papers strewn all over the floor, covered with sand. And the final photograph of the series is shot from inside the dilapidated room toward its open door. The floor is covered in paper and cardboard boxes and this layer of dust and sand, but our eyes are drawn to the land and sky outside the door frame. By depicting this dust covered wrecked archive of military remnants as detritus, ruin, toxic trash, The film trains our eyes to observe in ways that the French military's maps and measurements really never could, even if they were all made public. Atome does not rely on or consult those materials. Um, It does not cultivate desire for them. Aji's photographs sort of mute this desire in order to move our gaze and our senses elsewhere out that open door, past the profoundly damaged granite mountain. And so I think the film does not affirm the French state's aesthetic power by fetishizing secrets that are an intrinsic part of its self-affirming authority, but rather observes the waste products of this exercise of authority and ignores it to make space for and to cultivate attention to other forms of place knowledge, memory, and speaking that this toxic archive was created in order to destroy. I'm going to end by pointing to where the film then goes and then open up to discussion. So just a couple more images and descriptions So there are a series of shifts in the film, and the next one, after surveying the abandoned site, it moves again, as if out that open door, toward Mertutek. And this part of Atom, before we get to Mertutek, begins with a man's voice speaking in French over a black screen. You heard the voice on the trailer. i referred to it several times. It is not identified by the film, um, but its content makes it very clear that this is the mouthpiece of the French state. right? Le, le, what does he say? Le site choisi est à la fois désert et beaucoup plus proche, etc. At the same time, we hear that voice, we're seeing images of, of residents of Merteutec, a juxtaposition that silently and surely undermines those assertions so that they sound obscene and criminal. So the audio here is a recording of the delegate Jules Mouk speaking in November, 1959 at the United Nations in Manhattan. He's making the case for nuclear bombing against a broad coalition of representatives from across the decolonizing global South led by um, Ahmed Taiba Benima, who you see there looking very skeptical and disdainful. And the few sentences we hear in Atom from Jules Mouk are excerpted from a much, much longer speech. But in the film's audio, The sentences that Mook is speaking has, they're not just excerpted, but they're actually redacted. You can't hear this. You have to look at the long version of the discourse to notice. But cut from his sentences are asides in which Mook is referring directly to maps that he had printed and distributed to his audience at the UN in 1959. Here are those very maps published the next day in the New York Times, along with translations of Benima's and Mook's speeches. The maps compare the Algerian Sahara with the Nevada and Kazakh nuclear operations sites to show just how empty and safe the Saharan bombs would be, right? Way less threatening, Mok is saying, than the bombs in Nevada. And weirdly, again, the Sahara maps are blurry. I don't know. They're, they're just some sort of thing with um, the French state's Saharan maps. So Mok's claims he, and his, his pointing and gesturing to these maps are sonically redacted from Le Frize. Editing, they're also interrupted, right? His last sentence is actually cut off in the film and none of these maps or ref- references to these maps enter the film. And this particular map has actually had an extremely long visual afterlife in documentaries about this and in publications about this we see versions of this map over and over again but they are redacted from Atom. So Mok's voice is not only contradicted, redacted but also interrupted and then replaced by a rich sonic track of multiple voices and soundings. I'm not going to replicate or show you this, but just invite you to go see the film somehow um, so that you can hear it, but I'll describe it. Previously in the film, we have heard wind moving through vast spaces, the crackling of, of decimeters detecting toxic radiation. We've heard Aji's solitary narration, but now we hear multiple human voices Speaking gently, we can hear the soft calls of birds and their wings flying past the microphone, the sounds of chickens, roosters, goats, babies crying, the voices of people of different ages in a shared space. So even if we do not speak the languages, which are largely Darja and Tamashek, we can detect the tones of greeting among people who seem to know one another and who sound interested in listening to one another. Right, so this is not a zone to pass through or a blank space to look down upon from the up above perspective of power, but a properly named place with sociality, history, and of course, ecology. And it has been harmed by violence, but is clearly not deserted. There's a living, interdependent, distinctively threatened place and a home to many lives. So this is the audiovisual field in which testimonies of people who live in Tech resound in the film. And it's unlike the interpretive framing that I've seen elsewhere in other collections of testimonies um, and also in other interviews with the victims that appear in other documentary films on this subject. Right? And most obviously none of these other sources include accounts from women, right? All are former French soldiers, occasionally former Algerian laborers, the heads of state, the military, but in Atom, the voices of women who live in Tech and men share in crafting a kind of collective memory of what happened after Taurit exploded in 1962. So the film here displays a series of portraits of different residents of Tech, along with photo and film scenes within the town. But interestingly, the voices we hear do not correspond directly to the images. So it's not like you're listening to someone and, and looking at them at the same time, which creates an intricate audiovisual experience of the place that cultivates close listening. Right It sharpens our sensitivity to the distinctive subtleties of different voices, to their interactions, and to the way that they interact and cohabit within a social and ecological environment. This also pushes back on any impulse to reduce narrative complexity to case study or to hear their grief and sorrow as abjection. There's a voice of one woman in particular that frames the entire series of spoken accounts. And when we first hear her, she's warming up to tell a story, she says, in Tamashek, that is translated in French subtitles. What do you want? What story do you want me to tell him? I only know that one. I don't know any others. Right? Her voice is robust, resonant, vivid, and she laughs often while she's talking. And then when she begins to recount what happened, what she remembers happening um, that day in 1962, her speaking assumes a strong sense of rhythm, like a poem, or recitation, it's clearly a story she has told before, there's an artistry to her narrative. And she imitates the sound of the explosion that shook the earth and sent the black cloud over her village, diz, 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 diz. And you saw that in the, in the trailer. She says, we heard this terrible sound and then we went to hide behind the trees. And then she laughs at the idea that the trees could have offered protection from such a thing. And that same woman's voice picks up at the end of the sequence, after we've heard a dozen or so other people speak. And she, her voice is remarkably, she laughs, it's vibrant and strong, surprising given the terror that she is describing. She says, look at me, although the image we're shown does not correspond to what she's describing. I have no eyes, my mouth is falling, I'm good for nothing. This is not old age, this is sickness. Look at my eyes, this one is dead, my teeth have fallen out, I have nothing left, this is what happened. And then she laughs again. So this is not, victim testimony crafted for legal purposes, but an aesthetic act of narrative authority that conveys both historical knowledge that is absent from the written and material archive and also a qualitatively different sense of place than do the other efforts to map or measure the loss and suffering inflicted by the French bombs. Atome registers this voice and many others as authorities from whom to learn, voices that inspire respect, that command dignity, and that also guide us to interpret and read the signs in the land that they know. The dead beetles, birds, ants, lizards, the seeds that wither upon sprouting, the water that sickens animals and infects grains and food, the animals producing toxic milk, the children born with twisted bones and blind eyes. So those who are targeted to bear the wounds of nuclear violence in their bones, cells, tissues, food, water, wind, offspring, and memories are also those who are made to disappear in the state-sponsored production of deserted, empty space. So here, and to end, I'm taking up Champa Biswas's claim, which is also, I think, an implicit claim running through ATOM, that addressing the problem of nuclear violence really must start by centering the actual present ongoing harm being inflicted on precisely those whom security studies frameworks and state-centered discourses of nuclearity are in some ways designed to make disappear. Put differently, this is Champa Biswas, the subaltern is already and has always been speaking, but the vehicle of the state does not let us hear them and the frame of security does not let us attend to them. Atom, and I hope other works that I will discover as I continue this project and that we can talk about, turns away from those maps, archives, and frames produced and controlled by states, and also alerts us to the inadequacy of existing legal frameworks to repair or even register the true scale of nuclear harm. This calls us to produce not legal evidence and victim testimony that speaks to existing laws, but rather to radically alter the space of enunciation. All right, so the question I've been asking that I am still asking after watching Atom many times and dwelling with these materials is what would we have to change if we took this film's epistemological moves seriously? Thank you.
2: Thank you very much for your fascinating paper, for the ways that you curated the multiplicity of narratives, records, positions, and terms. I really, really enjoyed it. Thank
0: you very much. Thank you for listening to Maghreb in Past and Present Podcasts. To see related slides, please visit our webpage www.themaghreppodcast.com. Other episodes are available on our website, www.themagribpodcast.com as well as on iTunes and Podbean. For more information on our podcasts, like our Facebook page, Maghreb in Past and Present Podcasts, subscribe to the CMAT newsletter at www.cimatmaghreb.org, or visit the webpage of the American Institute for Maghreb Studies. See you soon for new episodes.